Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome back to Turn the Page. I am your host for today, Jen, and I am joined by an amazing, brilliant, really funny comics creator. Um, I just learned that all in the last 10 minutes that we've been chatting, so (laughs) in addition to reading this book. Um, So yeah, let's hop right into it. Hi, welcome. Could you introduce yourself and your book, please? Yeah, I'm uh, Dave Baker. Thank you for having me. And uh, the book that I guess we're here to chit-chat about today is my new hybrid novel, graphic novel from Top Shelf Publications, Mary Tyler Moorhawk. It's so much fun. The art is gorgeous and it really plays with the form of graphic novels in a lot of ways I really enjoyed. Um, Could you talk a little bit maybe about uh, your career and your journey to this book? Sort of where did this project arise from? And yeah, what's its story? Um, So I am originally from Arizona. Uh, and then I'm, I've lived in Los Angeles now for probably about, oh God, eight, 10, 75 years. I am on my deathbed, Bob Evans style, a career behind me, uh, completely irrelevant, just gasping for air, being like, I gotta make one more thing. That's where <laughs> I'm at right now. And, um, uh, I've made, uh, quite a few graphic novels. I have, I got nominated for an Eisner for my book, Everyone is Tulip, which was co-created with Nicole Gu. Um, I also made a coming of age romance comic called Fuck Off Squad about skater kids in Los Angeles, also with Nicole Gu. Um, my previous publication was a graphic novel from Simon and Schuster called Forest Hills Bootleg Society, which is about a bunch of bullied teenage girls who start a bootleg anime DVD distribution uh, ring in their conservative Christian high school uh, in the year 2005. Also with Nicole Gu. <laughs> We've worked a lot on on projects uh, together. Uh, I also... Because we interviewed her earlier this year about pet peeves. So. Oh, nice. Nice, yeah. nice. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think the world of her, I think she's a doll. Uh, quite a funny, uh, skilled uh, individual. Uh, I think she draws very well. Uh, but maybe I'm a little biased because I'm the one that goes... And then they were sitting on a hill and the wind is blowing in their hair. And then she just makes it like amazing looking. Um, I've also written on Star Trek and uh, Ben 10, the TV show. And uh, I was one of the writers and producers on a 10 episode Alien versus Predator TV show that got killed during the uh, uh, Disney Fox merger, which is weird. It's weird to have worked on something for like four years and then it just never see the light of day. Um, But the book in question is kind of my response to the process of living through all of that, where um, every great artist's true medium is compromise. It just is, you know, when you're working in a collaborative medium and you're going to some of your ideas are going to stick and some of them are not. And uh, that's the beauty of it. Right. Because other people are going to bring what they bring to it, their voice and your voices are going to join together and hopefully become a chorus not like some shitty doo-wop group in the back of a, I don't know, I don't know, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're, you're hoping it comes together and sings in the same tune is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that happens and sometimes that doesn't happen. So this book was me trying to make something that was completely uncompromising, almost to the degree of self-sabotage. <laughs> <laughs> 
like like you know so the, the the book is split in two halves the first half is a kind of johnny quest nancy drew tom swift jr style action adventure comic about a family of super scientists who must race against the clock in order to stop a villain from an alternate timeline uh from committing spatio-temporal holocaust and unmaking the world to very kind of pulpy retro futurist um you know big ideas big explosions tm style story and then the other half of the book is about a journalist 100 years in the future who is obsessed with a tv show that only lasted nine episodes also called mary tyler moorhawk which seems to be an adaptation of the comics that you're reading the thing that throws a monkey wrench into this is that in the future physical items have been outlawed so all tv show media dvd comics everything every all of our culture has just been su suppressed and has been eroded by time so people have kind of forgotten what the idea of a story is everybody just kind of like works and then they watch these news programs that are projected in large holographic like communal viewing spaces and then they just work so it's that's what it is over and over and over again and there is a subset of this society in the future um that still remembers story and still remembers these pieces of pop cultural ephemera and they trade them and buy them in these weird basement shows and so the novel is almost like an epistolary collection of the zines from 100 years in the future called physicalist today and the journalist who is also named dave baker is like cataloging and researching this tv show to try and figure out why it was canceled after only nine episodes and then he comes to the strange realization that the guy who created the tv show is also named dave baker and that sends him off on this journey to try and find this reclusive man who may or may not be alive uh and the the book kind of spirals out from there there's so much I love in there, especially the, um, you know, the sort of like the meta narrative with like the footnote apparatus, because I am like I am what I like to call a recovering academic. I think other people would call it a failed academic. <laughs> and um, so I just I really love like a good fictional sort of like research project. Um, I have two questions about that. Um what is it like to sort of write a fake history? Like when you are making, writing a fake history through an accrual of documents, you know, like the way mm. that research goes. And how does, like, what is it like to write another you? Do you distinguish mm. yourself from that you or are you writing yourself directly on the page? <laughs> uh, so the, what is it like to write a fake history is, um, I think that, so the, one of the, there's a few kind of writing influences that, influence the structure from that one being this uh book called phantasm exhumed by dustin mcneil which is a um exhaustive research project where this guy went and interviewed everyone involved in the making of don coscarelli's what is five is five septology or is that six whatever the five the five movies in the phantasm franchise he interviewed everybody involved in them including rory guy aka angus scrim the star of the movie and he got his his journals and rory guy is a really interesting person he was like a grammy award-winning liner note writer who just kind of had this interest in maybe i'll perform as an actor one day and when he was like 50 just like replied to an ad in the newspaper and he ended up becoming this weird piece of pop culture history where he kind of, I mean, he was in a bunch of other stuff. I'm not downplaying it, but like 
let's be real, appearing as the the Lord of Draculon, the planet in the shitty low budget Vampirella movie, maybe <laughs> not as prestigious or as culturally impactful as the tall man. And so he's really known as the tall man. And he went from being just like a normal dude to being this piece of pop culture iconography. And um, all of that is detailed in this book. And I loved the way that Dustin McNeil treated these objectively obscure, strange pieces of pop culture as if he was telling like Napoleon's life story. You know, it's like everything is is in there. You know, the the amount of money they spent to rent the lights for the original movie and like all of the weird things that they shot during the production of the first movie that they didn't use for like almost two decades and then ended up putting in as alternate timelines in the third movie. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, so there was this kind of, there's this weird fever dream in that research project that I was trying to capture of like, as a creator and as somebody who's constantly in, for better or for worse, the, their their own narrator in terms of public facing things like this, you you find yourself telling yourself a story in the presence of other people. I'm from Arizona. I uh, had a lonely childhood. I didn't, but you know, whatever. I uh, have this number of siblings and I wanted to do this and I went over here and I sacrificed this. And I think it's really easy over the course of telling those stories for them to slip and drift and become other things. And I don't think it's always necessarily a positive thing for you to continually reinforce a narrative, whether that be a aspirational one or a, you know, kind of more demeaning one, depending on the mind of the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of comes from David Foster Wallace. Uh, he is an essayist and a very, you know, famous novelist, wrote Infinite Jest and The Pale King, uh, Broom of the System. And uh, he would lie in interviews about meaningless stuff. Like he would lie about what his hometown was. He would lie about not having a good relationship with his mom or having a good relationship with his mom. And I, it was so interesting to me to be like, what is this guy's obsession with constructing a narrative that is just like two steps away from who he really is? Like, why not say like, yeah, I was raised in the Amazon jungle by monkeys. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're going to lie and like make a kayfabe narrative about yourself, do, wouldn't it make sense to like, make something that's truly aspirational, you know, like Orson Welles is the same thing. He lied his way through the first like 15 years of his career. He went to Ireland and was like, I'm a huge director on Broadway. And they were like, oh, you're a huge American director, direct plays for us. And then he went back to the States and was like, I'm a huge, the famous painter. But also I've directed some plays in Ireland. And they were like, oh, take over Broadway performance of Othello or whatever. <laughs> um, and I think that there's, there's interesting of dialectics that happen and pivot points that happen with people when they aren't truthful and it works out versus when they aren't truthful and it doesn't work out Mm. um and how you kind of can't do that anymore like imdb is a thing you know what i mean um so the all of that was kind of the soup of like what is the version of me that maybe is played up more of my fandom and is obsessed with these things but doesn't have a creative outlet and becomes almost covetous of the end result. Um, and so that kind of darker version of myself that maybe is frustrated or wishes that X, Y, or Z had happened, but maybe didn't have the strength or the circumstance or the privilege to be able to pursue it, um, I felt like was a kind of 
interesting uh, foil for the other characters in the comics section and also for me as an individual and also for this weird fictionalized version of myself when I'm like a fucking 120 cy year cyborg like I don't know how the fuck that guy is still alive like he's ancient <laughs> but he's still alive I guess that's fascinating to me um because I, it, it speaks to sort of the connection between like the meta narrative prose bits and the comic bits that like um Maybe I didn't phrase that correctly. There's something about, I think, you know, when you are self-mythologizing like that in interviews or for social media or what have you, where you kind of lose like a little bit of yourself to the stories that you tell, like you, their original meaning is replaced by like whatever meaning you're trying to convey to the audience you're speaking to. And there's something also, I think, about like getting obsessed with like, lost or uh, rare, obscure media that was important to us when we were younger that is also kind of about trying to recover like a lost part of yourself or the feelings that you felt. Like there is a history being written about like this lost media, but also like a sort of trying to recreate a history of yourself through that, if that makes sense. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And I think that there's that speaks uh that strikes a real chord with me because when I was really young, um, without going into too much detail, I was involved in an extreme religious situation. And the amount the amount of contemporary culture that I consumed was greatly diminished versus the amount of culture from decades or generations past. Um, so I was obsessed with things like Have Gun Will Travel, The Rifleman, The Hardy Boys. Because, partly because I was genuinely obsessed with them and partly because that was what was deemed uh, approachable or acceptable or non-negatively impacting me, right? And I think that because of that kind of um, almost like cultural chastity at a certain point, I've it's like warped my mind to just immediately always be like oh but i gotta figure out this and i gotta research that and i gotta know about this and i gotta oh, oh the red hot chili peppers i don't even like them but like what are all the records i gotta know um and like dave navarro was in the fucking red hot chili peppers who yeah. <laughs> um, like i genuinely don't care about the red hot chili peppers i don't know why i'm <laughs> making fun of them but but you know what i mean like i i i i i think it 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 impacted me in a way that I'm constantly doing weird research projects or whatever about obscure pop culture things, which is probably the germ or the root of the idea of the journalist guy sections is like, you know, what if that was like a lifeblood? And it wasn't just me. There was like a bunch of other weirdos who also spent their time like that. And then we all met up in these basement conventions and tried to illegally sell VHS tapes from, you know, 100 years in the past to each other. Which also, I love the way comics has evolved in my lifetime. I love going to conventions and seeing people from all walks of life. And I'm very thankful that it has been that. Mm -hmm. um, but I also remember the dark times where it was like, you're meeting in a Marriott ballroom and there's like four guys named George, you know, like... Uh, and and there was something about there's something about that that is both I understand really kind of toxic, but also fascinating. Um, there's such a strange insular world that happens when it's like 
there's no diversity and it's just like the same six white dudes with beards you know <laughs> and that was kind of fascinating to me to write about and try and unpack of like why do I love this why do I hate this what is the underlying kind of lesson to take from this other than just like maybe we should just have people from different backgrounds around each other <laughs> that'll probably be pretty chill right that'll probably be pretty chill um yeah but I think the the book overall is like I wanted to just juxtapose and hopefully create the feeling of when you first find something that connects with you and is so good and enthralling that you have to look be, look behind the scenes. You you know like the old uh, full moon video zone stuff where you know these shitty low rent movies that at the end of the movie the VHS would be like 15, 20 minute documentary about how you'd make the movie how they made the movie which is almost better than the movie itself because you're just like oh my god there's all these people and they're in a warehouse in burbank and they're making like blood bags and like monster masks like this is so so cool or like seeing photos of the old marvel bullpen where you're like oh my god jack kirby and fucking they're all just there they're all yeah. just like dudes hanging out making stuff that looks so fun i want to do that <laughs> then you go and you sit at your desk in your room and you're like eh, i haven't spoken to someone in nine hours eh. <laughs> Yeah, they don't they don't photograph all the parts where they're you know get you know yeah get wrist splints and you know so <laughs> yeah totally yeah yeah so I kind of wanted to make something that was both about what it's like to be in a fandom that recreated the feeling of discovering a fandom the mm -hmm. dark sides of that the weird toxic behaviors the 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 way people co-opt and reclaim pieces of culture the idea that as an artist you're putting something out into the world and then once you do it's not really yours anymore and how some people struggle with that and they try and maintain ownership of it and some people just let it go and it becomes something else really dark like matt fury with you know the frog stuff where it's just like that guy should have been fighting back way long before he did but now he doesn't care because he's just making like you know crypto nft money or whatever like literally millions off of like stealing goku images and then tracing them and putting that frog guy on it you know like <laughs> i mean and you know what at the end of the day he's one of the few cartoonists who's going to get out of this alive like most of us you know alex toth he may be a genius but that motherfucker died penniless and alone <laughs> uh, so yeah, what, comics you know. will break your heart and your bank so you know like oh. <laughs> yeah a hundred percent yeah comics will break your heart in parentheticals and give you diabetes <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm really curious and interested in what like this comic has to say about physical media and both like its role, I think, in the fandom spaces we're talking about, but also in our society. And since I'm a media librarian who works like with movies and CDs, I think about physical media all the time and sort of its increasing rarity and how that also like affects our relationship to it, you know, because just to create like one analog example in the 90s when I was a teen and I would be looking for some weird out of print CD, I would like work really hard to get it. It would come in the mail and then I would like listen to it until I knew it inside and out. And then if you were to flash forward like 10 years later to, to 2010 when I had BitTorrent and I could download an entire discography in four seconds and then never listen to it because it cost me nothing to get it, you know? And so can you talk a little bit about your thoughts about physical media and maybe the role that they play in your society that you're crafting in the book and what that says about us? Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail right on the head in terms of, you know, my experience with BitTorrenting was very similar to yours. I was obsessed with both 
um, at that specific time, I was obsessed with the Smiths and I was expected, obsessed with Rage Against the Machine. And I, I was that guy, like going into the weird Bitcoin, BitTorrent, Bitcoin, no, not Bitcoin, <laughs> BitTorrent. They're different. Um, please don't come for me, internet. Uh, <laughs> BitTorrent forums and like asking people like, you know, do you guys have the like 96 show at CBGBs? I mean, not CBGBs, but insert, you know, random uh random uh, venue here where rage played with a double bill with fucking you know insert band here <laughs> and um you know i i was like obsessive of it i had hundreds of live bootleg recordings of these bands and similarly i i listened to them but it was more the hunt because it was a that was a transfer over from me being an obsessive comic book person and being like i want to try and collect you know every issue uh that fucking scourge of the underworld appears in uh spoiler alert i did at a certain point and now i've stopped it because i just there's just too much there's just too many there's like 70 appearances of scourge of the underworld before there was only 28 and i had all 28 i don't want to have to track down more it's crazy <laughs> justice was not served that day um so the the process of that kind of like laborious bin diving and and researching and talking to other fans to try and get these weird things to me was the point the end result it's fun but it wasn't the it wasn't the enjoyment of the thing wasn't as fun as the journey of trying to get the, to the thing mm -hmm. and um yeah a lot of that i think is gone and i think physical media in general is you know, I keep joking that I hope it has a resurgence when everyone realizes that the, the you know, the mirage of streaming isn't what we were sold. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know that that's the case specifically because of the one-two punch of streaming taking over and nostalgia culture just decimating global culture, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the word nostalgia is supposed to have a bittersweet to almost painful meaning to it. And that word has just been completely altered. And there's nothing wrong with that. Words change meaning all the time. All language is made up. Like, it's it's okay. You know, when people are getting pissed off because Riz was the year, the you know word of the year oh. last year, I'm like, come on. Let's, this is the same thing as, like, being pissed off in, like, 97 or whatever when Doe, like, the, you know, Homer Simpson catchphrase yeah. was the year, word of the year. Like, come on. This yeah. is part of, this is part of what it is. Frankly, we need more of that. I constantly am frustrated with the limitations of the English language and, it's lack of subtlety and lack of um, uh, kind of ex expressionary purchase around feelings of sensation and taste mm. uh, or even just experiential, you know, uh, like I'm constantly like, why don't we have a word that describes like standing on a beach, looking out over an ocean like that? There should be a there should be a word that like, oh, I'm experiencing oceanographer, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yes. There's all of these experiences that we have as humans that I feel like Japanese and, and you know, German, they have, I mean, and English as a language is a very kind of like collecting, like, oh, we're just going to use French for, you know, we don't have a word for foyer. It's just foyer. Fuck it. You know, um, uh, whatever. That's a whole different conversation. So anyway, nostalgia culture is really weird to me. And also I love it. Mm -hmm. This is the the, you know, kind of Schrodinger's cat of the experience of being alive at this point is like the fact that we live in a world where there's a Michael Morbius movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like what? There's three guardians of the galaxy movies and a Christmas. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's more Guardians of the Galaxy movies than there are Godfather movies? Oh. What is this world? That is like, that's a sobering. It's really weird. And I also like am simultaneously so excited by that because I come from a world where that wasn't a thing. And when I was like, I really wish they'd make a Kingdom Come movie when I was, you know, seven or whatever, people would just be like, they're never going to do that. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Whereas, you know, now they're making movies of characters that even I don't care about, you know, like... Yeah. Really? We're making a Madam Web movie, but she's going to be like a sexy 30-year-old? What is this? <laughs> yeah. We want Helen Mirren as... Whatever, it doesn't matter. So anyway, the 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 fact that the only thing that American culture exports now is our culture is really scary when it's... We're only exporting, hey, remember, mm. you know? Like, nostalgia meaning has not... Has pivoted from this weird when we get to i'm familiar with this is non-threatening what i'm getting to mm -hmm. i'm on after where everything is safe you know positive mm -hmm. to the to a mass consumptive degree like mm -hmm. we need hard edges and we need boundaries being pushed and we need artists expressing themselves in ways that on the surface might be initially a little threatening um mm -hmm. and so you know i think the uh the weird fandom fandomication fandomication that's not a word, but you know what I mean. Again, the limit limitations of English uh, <laughs> is really bizarre and frustrating and fascinating and safe. And it, I also go to these fucking movies all produced by Disney. So, like, I'm both a part of the problem and hopefully, I don't know, a little bit of the solution. I feel like that's probably a little bit of an over overestimation. You know, I, I don't I don't think that's really going to happen. But, you know, that's the point of the stuff that you're asking about is like how do you unpack this and put it together in a way that we can all think about it and maybe hopefully be uh excited about newer ideas not just the ones that are the same six fucking stories you know <laughs> figured absolutely yeah because i think there's a real um you know I think the difference that we're kind of talking about is like in that previous scenario where you were in a basement getting bootlegs, VHSs in a, in a basement with other people, that was like a process that the fans were sort of in control of a little bit. But now like Disney is selling back their own nostalgia to us and they are like continue to control the meaning and the significance of it. You know, like they're not letting you really have like the sort of personal, the more personal experience that the sort of previous landscape kind of let us have, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's a there's an interesting dialogue between the way specifically Disney and Warner Brothers are handling handling their their current catalogs and back catalogs where you know as we know the Disney Vault in air quotes is a thing that they've been doing for a long time where they've purposefully cycled in and out releases of this older media but just because it's not a new printing doesn't mean that it was unavailable where now the idea that you know Ted Sarandos or fucking David Zaslav or whoever it is that's going to be pulling these marionette strings that we're all going to have to culturally dance to is that they will be literally not there it's not like oh you're not going to be able to buy a new version of steamboat willie or whatever it's like no, no 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 there is no fucking cinderella like you you can't get access to it um or we're gonna promise you a batwoman movie and then it's gonna look really cool and then we're gonna fucking delete it like full-on destroy it mm -hmm. like that is Again, but here this is the this is the the kind of tension is like the conversation we're having is is it okay 
for these large corporations that control pieces of our culture to decide how that culture is disseminated. And also that culture that they're choosing how to manipulate or pivot is culture from like 80 years ago. Like I love Barbara Gordon. I love the Bat family. But it's a she was created in like 1950. Like, I feel like we can probably culturally move into a new direction, you know, not that she doesn't have things that can be said with her, not that she can't be a, um, you know, a mouthpiece for progressive ideals or new ideas or new stories structured around these characters. But, you know, I mean, I love Superman. Do I, do we really think that the new Superman movie is going to be wildly inventive? It could be, but it's probably going to be a Superman movie. And we all know what that is. And that's why we're going to go because we want the comfort food of Superman. Mm -hmm. And I love that. But also when everything is that, it's a little bleak. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the fact that like each one of these movies costs like the GDP of a small nation means that they cannot take artistic risks because it's all just, yeah. you know, calculus to death to make sure it, you know, at least doesn't lose money. So it's so ironic, too, because of the same problems that the comic book industry has about like speaking to a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller audience and recycling the same stories over and over and over and over again and constant reboot cycles and constant renumberings to number one to try and convince the people to come back into the fold that have left because of, you know, kind of turgid or bloated storytelling tactics is exactly what's happening in the theatrical world right now where every DC movie this year has failed. Yeah. Every one. Aquaman just failed. The Aquaman 1 was a billion dollar movie. Captain Marvel, the first one's a billion dollar movie. Like, and both of them, people don't care because they've seen the code of the Matrix in the same way that the direct market has abused and not fostered new readership and... It's a really weird Petri dish one-to-one -one of just like, when are we getting the new 52 of movies? You know, like it's going to happen. Yeah, it absolutely will. And I do not look forward to that, to that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really lovely. And um, I'm just curious, are you working on anything else uh, at the moment? What's on your horizon? Uh, well, right now I am... Talking a lot about Mary Tyler Moorhawk, trying to get the the word out, as they say. Um, but I'm drawing a book that I'm self-publishing uh, called Halloween Boy, which is about a kind of it's like an action adventure comic about a um, character who thinks that he's the patron saint of the impossible and that he'll only help people in, in unwinnable scenarios. Um, so every issue is a one and done story of him. Uh, being kind of conscripted, convinced, or cajoled into going on some bizarre, high-concept, kind of pulp-influenced um, journey uh, and and helping somebody out of a Kobayashi Maru unwinnable scenario. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's five issues of that, and I'm, that's that's what I'm working on when I'm not doing this. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to check that out, too. And I really... Uh, you know, speaking to our listeners now, I implore you to go check out Mary Tyler Moorhawk. It is so much fun. And like you're reading a comic and like a, a really good, uh, thoughtful book at the same time. Like it's just it's a really like it, it is like it, it is a, a transmedia media project inside itself, kind of like. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's that's literally the goal. So I you know, <laughs> hear you say that it worked for you means a lot to me. Um, Thank you very much.
Oh, thank you. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us. Go check out Mary Tyler Moorhawk wherever you like to get your comics. Thanks so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.